Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for the privilege that we have to continue to worship you. We thank you, Father, that we have such a great God and a great salvation. A salvation that saves us from our sins. A salvation that changes our hearts so that we might have a love for you and a love for your word and a love for your people. And we pray, Father, that you would work in our lives this day so that we might understand even more how we ought to praise you and worship you. We pray, Father, that you would teach us as we study your word. We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, that you have not left us to our own ignorance, but you have given us your very words that instruct us in the things that you would have us to do. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your commandments. And we thank you for the study of the commandments that we have looked at over the past months. And we pray that we would continue to meditate upon those truths. We also thank you, Father, for the Gospel of Mark. And as we continue to go through this Gospel, we pray that you would give us insight into the greatness of our Savior. And as we think upon him this day, Father, and what transpired in that upper room as they ended the Passover meal and as they instituted the Lord's Supper and all that he did in that room, Father, we pray that our hearts would be excited about who he is and what he has accomplished for us. We thank you for his willingness to go to Gethsemane, his willingness to go to Calvary, his willingness to go to the cross and to die there and go into the tomb. But we thank you that he did not remain in the tomb, but that he rose again so that we might have eternal life. Cause us to meditate upon these truths this day, Father. We pray, Father, for those that are unable to be with us today. You know their reasons and their needs. We continue to pray for those who are unable to meet with us, Father, due to the possibility of the virus affecting them. And we pray that you would be with them in a special way as they watch the sermon on video, we pray, Father, that they too would fill a part of this congregation even though they are not able to be with us. We pray, Father, for our world. We know that only the gospel is able to change man's heart. And Father, we look around and we see such wickedness, we see such hatred toward one another that it grieves our heart and it causes us to desire for an awakening to take place in our day. And we do pray, Father, that you would be gracious and merciful and that your gospel would shatter all barriers, that your gospel would change hearts and bring an end to the wickedness that we see in our day. Use us, Father, to be light in this dark world. And we pray that as the gospel is proclaimed today, not only here but throughout the world, that many would come into your kingdom to bring honor and glory to your name. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me again to Mark chapter 14. And we will pick up where we left off a number of weeks ago. My plans were to go into the next section. But after reading what a fellow pastor friend had written, I decided to deal with verse 26. Mark chapter 14, verse 26. I don't often deal with only one verse, but today we will look at this one verse. 
Mark 14, 26 says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. We see here in this particular verse that at the close of the Passover, Jesus and His disciples sang a hymn. One night after a family devotion around Christmas time, they had looked at the angels praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. And the little six-year-old girl looked up to her daddy and she said, Daddy, did Jesus ever sing? Children, have you ever asked your parents that question? Or have you ever thought about that? Did Jesus ever sing? Well, both Matthew and Mark tell us in the Gospels that the answer to that question is yes. And we just read this verse that speaks of Jesus singing. And we know that at the end of the Passover meal, all Jewish families gathered together and they sang. And we see on this occasion that it tells us that they sang and then they went to the Mount of Olives. They went to Gethsemane where we will look at next week. Jesus spent much time in prayer. Now, John, in his gospel, tells us that Jesus prayed. And we have the great high priestly prayer there in chapter 17. But Mark gives us this information about Jesus leading them in singing. Now this was a most holy, sacred moment for Jesus and His disciples. Just think about all that had happened on this particular evening. They had gathered together for the Passover meal in the upper room, which was observed once a year, a very special time for all Jews. But before the meal, we see that the disciples were arguing. They were arguing over who was the greatest. And Jesus did what? He simply took some water and a towel and began to go around and wash each one of the disciples' feet. It ended their argument. Of course, Peter even objected to Jesus washing his feet, but Jesus had a word to say to him as well, and then Peter continued to put his foot in his mouth, as he normally did, and, and said, well, wash all of me, Lord. And Jesus said, look, he who has bathed does only need his feet washed. But we see that after this, Jesus began to observe the Passover meal. And He began to share that there would be one that would betray Him. And each of the disciples sorrowfully, including Judas, asked the question, Who is it? Is it I? And then we see that Jesus said to John, after Peter said, Ask Jesus who it is. And Jesus said, Whoever I dip and hand this to, it is He. And Jesus dipped the bread and handed it to Judas. And Judas left. Then Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. That's interesting, isn't it? He was not going to allow Judas to participate in the Lord's Supper. And afterwards, Jesus teaches them a number of truths. And you find those truths, as I mentioned before, there in the Gospel of John, beginning there in chapter 13 all the way up through 17. And we have a lot of teaching from Jesus 
in those chapters. And John's the only one that records all those things that are spoken by Jesus. He also points out that all of them will desert him. Of course, Peter proclaimed never would he desert Jesus, never would he deny him. But then Jesus sets him straight and said, Peter, not only will you deny me, you will deny me three times. Then we see that Jesus prays this high priestly prayer in John 17 before they sing and before they leave for the Mount of Olives. As Dr. Doug Kelly, who is retired now from RTS, said, what takes place here could be considered being on holy ground and we need to take our shoes off. Of course, it wasn't until later that the disciples truly understood what really had taken place in that upper room. They really, at this particular time, did not have any idea of what was really occurring. But yet it's a night that they would never forget. Matter of fact, Jesus told them, instructed them in the upper room there in John chapter 14, verse 26, But the Comforter, who is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I say unto you. And of course, two of the main purposes of the Holy Spirit was what? Well, He was telling them to bring to them all remembrance. So all that had transpired in their ministry with Jesus over these three things, the Holy Spirit would bring those things back into their mind, including this event in the upper room. This would be brought back to their mind so that they would be able to teach others what took place and then record it so that we would have it and be able to look at it on this particular day. Verse 26, as Jeff Thomas says, is a verse largely forgotten. And when I read that, that's what pricked my heart to say, well, I'm going to preach on that verse. Listen to what he says. The church emphasizes the seven words screwed out of Jesus' deep anguish on the cross, some of them very brief and some of them quotations from the Psalms. But the church has largely ignored the fact that Jesus sang on His way to Golgotha. We remember those plaintive words that came out of the deep agony hanging on Calvary at the heart of His passion. But these considered hymns of praise that he sang in the upper room are largely forgotten. Do you think the words on the cross are more profound than the words he sang at the end of the supper? What can we say about them? Well, this particular verse gives us an opportunity to discuss what Jesus sang. It gives us an opportunity to talk about music and worship. And it's a very important subject that needs to be addressed, especially in our day when many people un misunderstand worship and music. First, the Scripture speaks much about worshipful music being something that God truly delights in. And we all recognize that God is the one that gives us the ability to make music. The first reference 
to musical instruments is found all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. And it speaks of Jubal, who was the maker of musical instruments. Uh, I remember ooh, a long time ago, 45 years ago, when I was at Clark College, majoring in music, one of the papers that I wrote was on Jubal, the maker of instruments. I don't remember much about that paper, and probably good that I don't. But anyway, he was the father of the harp and organ. Over 50 times in Scripture, it speaks of the harp. Now who, children, used the harp? King David, before he was king, he'd play the harp. As a matter of fact, he was hired by King Saul to come and play it because there was times that King Saul would have fits of rage and it would calm him down, as music often does. Music is an expression of praise and worship to God. Sing to the Lord with grateful praise. Make music to our God on the harp, Psalms 147 says. And we know that God is the one that created music. He created the birds to sing. You know, it's interesting when I got my hearing aids and I walked out of the doctor's office, I heard some birds singing. <laughs> And I said something to my wife. I said, I hear those birds singing. And she said it brought tears to her eyes because I had been missing all of that wonderful singing by birds. And I didn't realize it. I'm not the only one that needs hearing aids. My brother just got them all, so he's not here so I can pick at him. Don't tell him I said that, Wendy. <laughs> Some of you will need them pretty soon as well. But you can hear the birds. You can hear so much better. You can hear music so much better when you have them. And the Lord is the one that made the birds to sing those lovely melodies that we hear early in the morning. But as a spiritual people, as a people of God, we have ability to praise and worship God in song and with musical instruments. I wish I could play musical instruments. I attempted to learn to play the piano because I had to when I majored in music, but I can't play it. Nothing like what... Fonzo can do and others can do. What a wonderful instrument to hear played so that we can sing. As we sing, there's within my heart a melody. And in God's children, there should be within our heart a melody singing to Him. Now, now some people may look at music as that which you have to endure through to get to the sermon. I hope that's not the case with you, but if it is, let me give you some words from Martin Luther who may change your mind. He, he loved congregational music. And he stated the importance of music in a foreword of a collection of songs of multiple voice parts. He says, When man's natural ability is welded and polished to the extent that it becomes an art, then do we note with great surprise the great and perfect wisdom of God in music, which is, after all, His product and His gift. We marvel when we hear music in which one voice sings a simple melody, while three, four, or five other voices play and trip lustily around the voice that sings its simple melody and adorn that simple melody wonderfully 
with an artistic musical effect, thus reminding us of a heavenly dance where all meet in a spirit of friendliness, careless, and embrace. A person who gives this some thought and yet does not regard God, music as a marvelous creation of God must be a clodhopper indeed and does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the bawling of an ass, a donkey, and the grunting of a hog. So those are Martin Luther's words. <laughs> Take them as you should. We know that God loves for music is seen in 150 psalms. I mean, all of them have been set to tune in the Psalter. Now, I'm not saying all are easy to sing, but they've all been set to tune. And they're biblical. You can't be more biblical than the Psalter. The Bible has over 400 references to singing, and 50 directly command us to sing unto the Lord. Jeff Thomas says, reading the Psalms is like stumbling across a diary written by your great-great-great-grandfather 200 years ago. You blow off the dust, take out the magnifying glass, and then you read some of the trials he described. You discover your amazement of the describing of exact pain and bloodshed and opposition which you are meeting today. The victress way men were attacked, the corrupt courts, the bribes, the best friends turning against him, the ganging up of enemies upon him, the pain that he endured. This is exactly what you yourself are experiencing 200 years later. As you read these diaries, it takes your breath away. And similarity and uncandid, it is more like a contemporary record which describes what is going on in your life today rather than written centuries ago. That's how God's Word is. Not only in the Psalms, but all of God's Word is like that. Now, a few churches, of course, only used the Psalter to sing out of, believing that it is the church hymn book. I shared with you a few years ago about one of our major supporters with APC came to that understanding and he stopped supporting APC because we would not teach pastors that it's the only hymn book you ought to sing out of. So we lost a big supporter. Now, I like the Psalter, but I don't think that it should be the only hymn book that we ought to sing out of. I believe there are other wonderful hymns that have been written that we sing from. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And that's what we are to do. Second, we see the singing was common for the Jew especially when celebrating the Passover as we see in this particular passage. From the earliest of age, children heard from the day they were born, I guess we could say, their parents singing at the Passover, at the end of the Passover. One of the most beautiful scenes 
in the musical Fiddler on the Roof is when the family starts their Sabbath and they sing the Sabbath prayer. If you've never heard it, pull it up on YouTube, not now, but pull it up on YouTube in Fiddler on the Roof and the Sabbath prayer. It's beautiful. May the Lord protect and defend you. May He always shield you from shame. May you come to be Israel's shining name. May you be like Ruth and Esther. May you be deserving of praise. Strengthen them, O Lord. Keep them from the stranger's way. May God bless you and grant you long life. May the Lord fulfill your Sabbath prayer for you. May God make you good mothers and wives. May He send your, you husbands who will care for you. May the Lord protect and defend you. May the Lord preserve you from pain. Favor them, O Lord, with happiness and peace. O hear our Sabbath prayer. Amen. What a prayer to pray for your own daughters. May God use it to not only save them, but accomplish those things that are mentioned in it. But on that evening there at the Passover, tens of thousands of Passover meals were celebrated there in Jerusalem. The city was full of praise unto God as it flowed down the streets. There were four prescribed psalms at the end of the meal. Psalms 115 through Psalms 118. These were the Hallel psalms that were to be sung at the end of the Passover. The Passover required certain things. It, it required, first of all, that lamb, that spotless lamb that was to be sacrificed and that was to be eaten. There was bitter herbs that were also to be taken in the meal. And then there was the outdoor dress. But it also included these four psalms to be sung. And they actually had two different tempos that they could use for the psalms. But all of the Jews endorsed this. And Jesus had participated in around 30 Passovers from the day that He was born all the way up to this time. Jesus had participated in the Passover every year and He definitely learned all the psalms to sing at this annual celebration as He heard it repeated over and over. And Parents, let me encourage you. That's how you teach your children to sing hymns. Sing them at home over and over. There's so many opportunities that we have now with all the technology that we have to allow our children to learn beautiful, wonderful psalms and hymns so that they can participate in our worship service at the earliest of age. I mean, they, they want to. When they hear us singing, they want to sing. And sometimes they, they might just bawl out because they, they have that. They're wanting to join in, even though they might not be able to say the words that we say. But we need to encourage them to sing and to participate. Now, eventually, Jesus knew that these psalms were speaking of Him. And He vindicated them by doing what they say. He came to do His Father's will. The time is at hand. The time is coming. The time has come. And Jesus consciously and willingly made these psalms come true. So everybody on this evening in Jerusalem were singing the same psalms. 
But when Jesus sang Psalms 115, something entirely new was heard in the creation that day. It was a new song. When He sang it there on that night, that night that He was betrayed, there in the shadow of the cross. As I mentioned before, this was a holy night. It was a pivotal point in history. Years later, the disciples would look back on that night and they would remember every single thing that took place on that night with the aid of the Holy Spirit. It was a historical event that is recorded here in the Gospels for us. Maybe you can relate to something similar to that in your own life, an occasion that will never be forgotten due to the circumstances that surrounded that event. It might have been while you were singing a hymn. It might have been while you were hearing a sermon. It might have been some other reason. I mean, Elizabeth Elliot must have experienced something of that. Every time she heard, we rest on thee, our shield and defender. I mean, how could she hear that hymn and not think of Jim? Because that was the hymn that Jim and the other four men sang in their last planning meeting before they took the plane and went to the Indians and were slaughtered. I mean, that was etched in her mind. And every time she heard that hymn, she would think, of Jim. I think of my dad every time I hear or sing, it is well with my soul, because at his funeral, my siblings and I sang that hymn, and it's etched in my mind. And many of you have heard how this song was composed, but I want to share for those who have not. Horatio Stafford, he was a successful attorney in Chicago, but lost a lot in the Chicago fire. And after that, he thought that it would be good because he'd also lost a child at the age of four, his son to scarlet fever, that his family get away, that they would go to England on a vacation. So he, he sent his wife and his four daughters on the ship ahead and he was going to take care of some business and he would meet them there in England a little bit later. While crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship was involved in a terrible collision and it sunk. Over 200 lives perished. And he received the telegram from his wife, which began with these words, Saved alone. What shall I do? Of course, immediately he set sail for England to be with her. At one point during the voyage, the captain came to him aware of the tragedy that had struck his family and summoned him to tell him that they were now passing the point where the other ship had sunk. As Horatio thought about his four precious daughters drowning there, words of comfort and hope filled his heart and mind. And he wrote these words, 
When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well. It is well with my soul. That night, as Jesus sang that psalm, it was well with his soul. He was ready to fulfill that eternal covenant that he had agreed to in the eternal council. He looked at his task with joy, knowing what it would achieve for his people. And I hope that you will read the four Psalms and that you will meditate upon our Savior and how He boldly and lovely and willingly went to Calvary to die for His people. The uniqueness of singing these Psalms at the end of the Passover meal on that night was a once in a lifetime experience for these disciples which would never be repeated. The author was singing his own composition. Jesus singing was not about his voice. It's, it's not whether he was the greatest tenor ever to sing or the greatest baritone ever to sing. What was special was that he was the author of these words that he sang. I'm saying that the Spirit of Christ had been poured out on these Psalms by the psalmist, by the Lord Himself a thousand years earlier. And now that same Spirit was in the Lord Jesus Christ in the upper room on this occasion as He sang. When Jesus came into the world, He lived and moved and spoke and prayed and sang these psalms. In His words, the Spirit was preaching and witnessing and praying and singing in the soul of Jesus. Likewise, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because the Spirit of Christ is working in us. The Holy Spirit, the infinite person of the Son, are the two great two and one. And the Spirit of God has come to dwell in our life. Now there's no doubt that when Jesus sang these four psalms, perfectly reflecting the joy and the lamentation in heaven and all the angels listened to the singing that came from Jerusalem, that came from that upper room on that night. In every home, these four songs were being sung to God. But the most unique singer of all was Jesus. The Son of God, the author of these psalms, who was free from sin, and yet He was surrounded by twelve or eleven sinners. But these sinners could not fathom who he really was or what was really transpiring at this time. They were blind and deaf to what really was taking place. 
to the fact that the Heavenly Father was well pleased with His Son singing. The angels heard His singing with the light, and God inclined His ear and said, This is my beloved Son whom I am well pleased, even in His singing to me. But as I stated before, the disciples did not fully grasp at this time. But later they would. Third, I want us to briefly think about these three psalms, or these four psalms, which the disciples sang with Jesus. Look at the opening words, if you would. Turn to the psalms, Psalms 115 through 118. We read 118 a while ago. It's the longest of the four that are mentioned there. There in Psalms 115, the opening words, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. Jesus Christ is the only man in history of the world to literally fulfill the chief end of man. What is the chief end of man, children? You know the answer to that. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Jesus Christ is the only one to ever truly fulfill that completely. Of course, that should be our desire that we would glorify God in all that we do. And all that happened the next day, which included His arrest, trial, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, through all this, His great concern was what? His great concern was to glorify the Father, to bring honor to His Father in all that He did. And when the Gentiles' nations say to him, Where is your God? This God, let your own son die such a death. Then what was he doing? Why did this God allow all of this? He's a weak God. He's an ineffectual God, unable to protect his son. But Jesus' words rang out in confidence in the line of this psalm. Our God in heaven, he does whatever he pleases there in verse 3. Our Savior was full of trust in God the Father that night, the night that He was betrayed. And then there in Psalms 116, we see a mark of the great hymn, the unforgettable nature of its opening line when He says, I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my supplications. I love the Lord. Even though the Father is about to give him the most terrible cup to drink, full of damnation, Jesus will sing and drink it lovingly. And he will continue to sing of his love for his Father forever. Think of the Lord Jesus singing these words and expressing His love and trust in His heavenly Father. I mean, in the past, we've sung in our worship service, I love you, Lord. I lift my voice. I worship you, O oh, my soul rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. And let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. And Psalms 117 is the shortest of the four. 
but it is full of praise, summoning the nations to praise the Lord. The next day, Jesus would do this great work of salvation on the cross and He would fulfill this prayer. The nations were going to praise God even 2,000 years later as we gather together today. We lift our voices up to praise God for such a great salvation that Christ accomplished 2,000 years ago. And Christ knew that. He knew that His church would praise His name forever and ever and that the Gentiles would be included. And then the last of the four, Psalms 118, was sung just before they went to Gethsemane. But this closing psalm was more or less like singing the doxology. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His loving kindness endureth forever. His steadfast love. The disciples needed to hear those words. They needed to understand as they were about to face the darkest day of their life that they were to continue to give thanks to God because God is good no matter what happens. What a wonderful word to hear just before Christ goes to Calvary. Look at those words that were read just a moment ago. They're in Psalms 118. Verse 5, I called on the Lord in distress. And the Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is at my side. I will not fear. What can a man do to me? The Lord is with me among those who help me. Therefore I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men. Peter needed to hear that. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations surround me, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They surround me. Yes, they surround me, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They surround me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. But you pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength, a song, and He becomes my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is the tent of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the work of the Lord. How true those words were. They were about to be fulfilled the next few days as Christ went through all that He was confronted with and the disciples needed to hear that. Jesus had confidence in the love of His heavenly Father. What about you? When you come to God, are you able to say, Father, look on Your Son, Jesus Christ, and pardon me. Look on Him who hung at Calvary. Look on Him who reigns on the throne. Look on Him singing and have mercy upon my soul. Oh, how our singing should be glorifying to God. We must sing that which exalts God. 
that which we sing must have great theology in it. It must not be a 7 to 11 song. You know, 7 to 11, 7 words, you sing them 11 times. No, we need good theology. Hymns that are full of biblical truth. Hymns, psalms, spiritual songs. Augustine acknowledged the struggle in his own soul as far as music was concerned. In his confession, he wrote, I am inclined, though I pronounce no irrevocable opinion on the subject, to approve of the use of singing in the church so that by the light of the ear, the weaker mind may be stimulated to a devotional mood. Yet when it happens that I am more moved by the singing than by what is sung, I confess myself to have sinned wickedly and then I would rather not have heard the singing. In other words, what is he saying? He said, don't be moved just by the music. Be moved by the words, the good theology. He was convinced how music can distract us from the word, the potentiality of undermining the word. And he said, we must be careful. Ulrich Zingli, Switz pastor, even went further. He was so concerned about the music's power for a time, he banned music from his meetings. This, of course, would be the extreme. But he understood that people were being led away by the music and not giving thought to what they were singing. Boy, that's true in our day and time, folks. We have to be careful. Music and words are meant to be in conflict with one another. God has brought them together. That's why we say, as Psalms 147 one says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and the song of praise is fitting. See, God never intended that music replace the words. Or that music undermined the words. He gave us music to serve with the word. When that relationship is understood and appreciated, music becomes a powerful gift from God that complements, supports, and deepens the impact of the words that we sing. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee said, Show me a church's songs, and I will show you their theology. Think about that. Show me what a church sings, and I'll tell you a little bit about their theology. One writer wrote, We are what we sing. That answers a lot of questions, doesn't it? See, words should be the first thing we consider when we think about what songs we sing when we gather together as the body of Christ to worship God. Thought must be put into it. Pastor Tiago was telling me while he was at Capitol Hill when the ministers would meet together and plan out the worship service, all of them would meet every week together to plan out the worship service, and, and they sang the hymns together, right? Isn't that what you say? Y'all, y'all sang the hymns together. I think that's good. You know, it'd be good if we even were able to send it out earlier, the bulletin out earlier. I thought about this just now. (laughs) 
so that we can go over it beforehand to know what hymns we're going to sing, to show our children what hymns we're going to sing, so they can participate in the worship service. At least you can teach them one hymn a week that's in the bulletin, so that they can join in and understand what they're singing and use it as a teaching lesson in your devotional time for your children. As we see Colossians 3.16, Paul tells us, Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, with thanksgiving, thankfulness in your heart to God. And that's what we must not only do ourselves, but teach our children to do as well. Because it is the Word of Christ, the Word about Christ, the Word of the Gospel, not musical experiences or emotional highs that we are to dwell on richly as we sing. So we must see that the main purpose of music is to drive biblical truth into our heart. God's Word, God's character, God's work, especially His work of sending His only begotten Son into this world to atone for our sins and give us salvation. That is what we must sing about. Jesus must be exalted in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as Psalm 60 or 96, 1 and 2 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day. As we think upon the words that we sing, it should affect us in a positive way. Our emotions should be moved. That we have a deep experience, a spiritual renewal in our soul. Jonathan Edwards understood that, wrote much about religious affections. He said, The duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than it is imposed and do it with music. But only that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections. Now when Jonathan Edwards talked about affection, he was talking about our entire being, not some emotional experience separated from our entire being. Now that wasn't the case on the eve of the crucifixion. It wasn't simply an emotional high. It was the entire being as Jesus sang hymns with His disciples. As it says in Hebrews 2.12, it speaks of Jesus when it says, In the midst of the congregation I will sing praise. As Ephesians 5 tells us, Filled with the Spirit, in addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making music to the Lord, with your heart. So it's when we are filled with the Spirit, when God's Spirit is in us and, and moving us, we are able to commune with Him through the singing. And before Jesus faced His most difficult task, He sang hymns in the midst of the congregation and was filled with the Spirit. Then He went to the Mount of Olives. Again, it makes me think of Jim Elliot and those four others as they, as they sang that hymn together before they went and faced their death. 
singing the words of amazing grace should cause us to think about this great salvation that God has saved such a worm as you and me. It should cause us to examine ourselves to see if we have truly experienced amazing grace. If grace has changed our heart and drawn us to God to where we love to praise Him and worship Him. Likewise, singing the chorus, It is well, should cause us to consider and enjoy the peace that comes from Christ and Christ alone that can bring our soul through difficult times just as it brought Christ through the most difficult time in His life. If we are in Jesus Christ, then we have unspeakable peace. What about you this morning? Do you know that you have experienced that amazing grace? Do you have peace with God? Do you know that your sins have been paid for? that they have been placed under the blood of Jesus Christ and that He has given you His righteousness. And that no matter what comes your way, you are able to look to Christ and know that God does all things right. Even if it means taking your life, that He still does all things right. And in His timing, do you have that kind of peace? I pray that if you do not have a new song in your heart today, that God will put a new song in your heart. And the only way He puts that new song in your heart is when He puts Christ into your life by His Spirit. May you look to Him and Him alone so that you may experience the wonderful joy of this great salvation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for music. We thank you for the words that we are able to use to give you praise and honor and glory for who you are and all that you have done for us. Calls us to be mindful of this great salvation that you have bestowed upon your children. Cause those, Father, who do not have this salvation to realize that this salvation is full and free and comes to those who cry out to Thee for it. Do that which You can only do by Your Spirit to bring honor and glory to Your name. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.